Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we come to hear the Word of God this morning, let us turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13, here we are, of course, continuing in our series in the book of Revelation. And while you're uh, turning there, I wonder when you think of satanic worship, what comes to your mind? Now, if you are like me, you tend to think of a number of people gathered together in the midst of darkness in a circle. They are around a pentagram with candles lighting up in light of the profane worship that they carry out. Yet, brothers and sisters, what if I was to tell you that Satan is far more deceptive than this in seeking our worship? Satan knows us. He knows our desires. He knows our interests. He knows our passions. And he is a great imitator. That's why he seeks to imitate both Christ and his church. The truth is, satanic worship does not look much different than what is happening here this morning. This is why Jesus himself warns his disciples when he teaches them on the Mount of Olives what to expect in these days in the days to come. He says to them in Mark 13, verses 21 to 23, that if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. And what we see here in John or in, in Revelation chapter 13 is that what Christ has described to his disciples, Jesus now sees in visions from God. And then he records them for us so that we will hear the coming of a false Christ and the coming of a false prophet. So let us read then this morning Revelation chapter 13, where John writes of what happens in his vision. He says, Then I stood on the stand of the sea, and I saw a bear rising up out of the sea, having, or, or, or sorry, he saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him power, his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. 
Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Brothers and sisters, before we continue, let us again pray for the Lord to help us as we seek to hear these truths from his word this morning. Let us pray. Father, Again, we gather together to hear from your word. Whatever you speak to us this morning, may you then help us as we listen to these words from the book of Revelation, words of warning of what is to come and words of, of, of warning of what to expect as we seek to live in this fallen and sin-cursed world. May you then bless our time together, Lord. Oh, may you empower these words through your Spirit so that we can live in light of these truths with the confidence and certainty and comfort that are only found in Jesus Christ our Savior. Because it's only through Him, Father, that we can endure and persevere through the coming of such great enemies in opposition against us. So, Father, please be with us and be at work in us to save the souls of sinners and to edify and encourage all of us who have been saved by the grace of Christ. That's why we pray all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, what is God showing us here through this chapter of Revelation? To beware of satanic deception. We must beware of satanic deception. And this is seen through the rising of two beasts in this chapter. The first beast we see rising is the coming false Christ that is revealed in verses 1 to 10. But then the second beast that rises is the coming false prophet that is revealed in verses 11 to 18. So we have the coming false Christ is then followed by the coming false prophet. We begin then by looking at the first beast which comes up out of the sea. The coming false Christ. Of course, the Apostle John here has been recording these symbolic visions of prophecy for Christ's churches to encourage us as we face the temptations and trials and troubles and tribulation of this present evil age. But the way that Revelation is likely structured, the center of this book is the central message that Christ gives to the churches in this book that Christ will triumph over the kingdoms of this world as he then reigns over his eternal kingdom to come. This is where our great hope is found as we live through this age. So recognizing this structure as a chiasm, you work inward through parallel layers until you come to the middle of Revelation in verses 11 in chapter 11, verses 15 and 19, which then declares this central message in 11, verse 15, that the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But now, as we come to our passage this morning, this chapter, we're working our way back out, right? Which is why we then see that chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 13, verse 10, parallels chapter 11, verses 1 to 14, with the central message then sandwiched in the middle. So chapter 12 matches and expands upon chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Because both of these show God's protection and provision for Christ's church through this time of gospel mission. But now that we come to chapter 13, verses 1 to 10 match and expand upon chapter 11, verses 7 to 14, because these both describe the coming time of intense persecution when the Antichrist beast ascends out of the pit of hell to make war against Christ's church. So we have then in these verses, John seeing this beast up close as he describes him in much more detail. He's introduced there in chapter 11, but he's then identified in chapter 13. Before he was ascending out of the bottomless pit, now he's rising up out of the sea. But when John saw this beast rising up out of the sea, this is a symbol of the coming, of his coming from the realm of evil, since the sea represents the satanic domain. Through Scripture, which is why then in the new heavens and the new earth at the end of Revelation, we read there is no more sea. Because there is no more evil 
in God's presence. So he comes then up out of the sea because he is coming up out of the pit of hell. But what does John see then of this beast? Well, he's described as having seven heads with ten horns and ten diadems or crowns. But of course, this should sound familiar to us since it's how the dragon, Satan, was described in chapter 12, verse 3, which shows us that this beast has a satanic origin and source. This beast has been sent by Satan to wreak this havoc in the world. But as is so often the case here, To understand what John is seeing, we need to return to the Old Testament and especially here, the prophet Daniel. Because the background of this is Daniel's vision of the four beasts back in Daniel chapter 7, where we're given then the background of this imagery that we see here in Revelation. See, in Daniel 7, God reveals the meaning of these visions that he gave to Daniel. You know what Daniel saw? Four beasts coming up out of the sea, representing four kings and their kingdoms that arise in history from the time of Daniel until the coming of Christ. So these beasts represent the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian and the Greek and the Roman empires. You know something interesting about these four beasts? Guess how many heads they have when combined? Seven. Seven heads, which means that they are then all brought together for this final beast in Revelation that will arise in power. See, the fourth beast in Daniel's vision also had ten horns, which represent the kings following him that attack and persecute God's people when a little horn then comes up among them. And this little horn is the final king of this age that arises to oppose Christ and his church. Daniel records him speaking pompous words against the Most High and shall persecute the saints of the Most High, which is why he's seen here in Revelation with a blasphemous name on his heads. But John also explains the look of this beast by comparing him to animals. He says he looks like a leopard. His feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. You know what this means? Again, in Daniel's visions of the four beasts, these animals are how the beasts appeared. They represent the kings and their kingdoms that Daniel speaks of. So here then we have both the combination and the culmination of the wicked kingdoms of this world in the final beast to come. He will arise in history as a union, then, of these wicked kingdoms at the end of this age. Then John turns to telling us where this beast's power and his throne and his great authority come from. And we already know they come from Satan. Satan the dragon And remember, the great dragon who is the serpent of old called the devil and Satan. He deceives the whole world. 
now that his dragon has come, or now that his beast has come from the dragon, his beast too rises to deceive the whole world. But how does this beast deceive the world? By imitating Christ. Which is why we tend to call him the Antichrist. He is the Antichrist, the one against Christ, as he imitates Christ. Because he appears here with a deadly wound on his head, or on one of his heads, which has been healed as a perverse copy then of Christ's death and resurrection from the dead. You see, as Christ overcame death with life and bore the wounds of his crucifixion on the cross, so this Antichrist also claims to overcome death by a sword with life and bears the wounds from it as well. Do you know what's tragic in the midst of the rise of this beast? that the world responds to the rise of the Antichrist in worship. The world in sin marvels and follows the beast. Because the truth is, our sin will accept any substitute for Christ. We will latch on and follow anything that will allow us to continue in our sin and give us the false security that only Jesus can provide. Even if this means the very destruction of our souls. Which is why we read them here, worshiping the dragon Satan and the beast himself, the Antichrist, in the place of God. So they asked the questions that previously in Scripture were asked of God himself. Because they now see them being fulfilled in the beast. Then as we continue reading what John describes here through this vision, we see that while Satan has given this beast his power and throne and authority, that it's God who remains sovereign over what the beast will do when he comes. See, while Satan is called the god of this age, his rule is only permitted and allowed by God, who gives the Antichrist three things in verses 5 to 8. First, God gives the Antichrist a mouth speaking blasphemies against God. Second, He's given a time to make war with the saints. And third, he's given authority over every tribe and tongue and nation. See, we've already seen the limits that God has placed on Satan's activity through this age. But now we once again see this in the limited time that God has permitted the satanic beast to have authority. How long can he continue to make war? 42 months, which once more is three and a half years. This then is the second half of the final week of Daniel's 70 weeks, which we've already explored here 
through Revelation, that there is this seven-year period that symbolizes all of this church age from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And in the midst of these seven symbolic years, they're divided then by the rise of the Antichrist. Because we currently live in the first symbolic three and a half years while Christ church engages in gospel mission. But the rise of the coming beast will then lead to the second symbolic three and a half years at the end of the age when his persecution will come. But let's briefly consider each of the three ways that God allows this beast to have authority during this time at the end of the age. Because first we see him opening his mouth in blasphemy against God. You know, as this passage is read, how many times did we hear the word blasphemy? In verse 1, he has a blasphemous name. In verse 5, he's speaking blasphemies. In verse 6, he opens his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. He's like the wicked king in Daniel 11.36 who shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. So this Antichrist rises and says he is the one who is to be worshipped. He puts himself in the place of God. He claims to be the supreme God over all, demanding our worship instead of worshiping God in Christ together with the hosts of heaven. But not only does God give him this time to speak blasphemies, but he also grants to him this time to make war with the saints and overcome them which is what we've already read back in the parallel that is in chapter 11, verse 7. Listen, there John wrote that when the two witnesses finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. This is what wait, awaits the church of Christ as this age continues. And war with the Antichrist. And not only war, but death as he overcomes us. God gives him and grants to him this time. So he, he gives him the speech to blaspheme. He grants him this time to make war. And then third and finally, God gives him this authority over every tribe and every tongue and every nation in the world. Which is why we saw again back in chapter 11, verse 8, how all these peoples were celebrating the church's witnesses which died at the beast's hands. Why then will all those who dwell on the earth come to worship this great Antichrist? John goes on to say it's because their names have not been written in the book of life. See, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are sinners who are under God's wrath 
And there's those who are saved by God's wrath, or who are saved from God's wrath by the blood of Christ, who then offers himself in love to take our place. You see then here that what when we live in rebellion against God as sinners, that we will still worship something. Even if it's a poor parody of Christ. This means we too, in our sin, will worship Satan and those whom Satan brings into power in this world. But those of us who believe in Christ, listen, we've been chosen by God to be saved by Christ the Lamb who was slain for us. Which is why our names have been recorded in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Look then at our security in Christ. The security of our salvation. Our names are written. And what God has written, he will accomplish through Christ. So we have no fear in Christ of Losing our salvation, of falling to worship the Antichrist, because we know and experience true joy in Christ Himself. But I ask each of you this morning which kind of person are you? Are you one? who continues to live in rebellion against God as sinners. Is Satan continuing to deceive you so that you can live as you want to live, even as this brings eternal judgment and torment to your souls for your sin? Or are you looking to Christ who love and grace and mercy is found. Oh, look, this morning, Christ is ready to save your soul. As you look to him with eyes of faith and come to him for forgiveness of your sins. Because of his death on the cross, He took the very wrath of God we deserve upon himself so that we be reconciled with God and receive eternal life to enjoy in God's presence. So confess your sins to God this morning as you come to Christ by faith. And truly experience a greater joy and worship than the kind of false worship that Satan brings into this world. But this is the very real struggle that Christ Church will face, which is why John then pauses in verses 9 and 10 to write directly to those receiving the book. He says, hear this warning. Be prepared for what is coming. 
Don't fall for this satanic deception of the Antichrist and compromise your faith or forsake Christ when this power comes against you and his war is unleashed upon you. That's why his prophetic warning then here is given in these verses as a four-line statement of two couplets on captivity and the sword. And I like how the Christian Standard Bible here reflects the translation of the proverbial statement when it says, If anyone is to be taken captive into captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. See, this is a time where Christians will be taken captive. This is a time where Christians will be killed with the sword. We will face captivity and death for our faith in Christ as we struggle and suffer in this world. And the time is coming under the reign of Antichrist when Christ's church will fully experience such captivity and death as he overcomes the church in this war. What then shall we do in the midst of this kind of opposition? Should we revolt? Should we resist? Should we rebel? No. But we should accept our struggles and suffering under God's providence, knowing that he is at work through this time to bring us to our glorious future to come in Christ. That is where our hope is found, brothers and sisters. Not in overcoming the Antichrist or the powers of Satan in this world, but in waiting for Christ when he returns in the glories that he brings with him You see, as hard and as painful as our persecution will become, that's why John writes that we must persevere as saints of God by patiently enduring this time of tribulation and continuing in our faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we see throughout the Scriptures. For example, we can look to what the Apostle Paul writes about this time in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1-8. Here, too, he writes about the coming of the Antichrist, who Paul calls in this chapter the man of sin. But listen to what Paul writes about the Antichrist as Christians wait for the Lord's coming, for Christ's coming. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 8, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or trouble, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ has come. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of God or the man, sorry, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped. So he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? 
And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. See, there is a falling away that will come among Christians under the pressure and persecution from the Antichrist. Brothers and sisters, we must be prepared so that we will persevere with the patience and faith of the saints. And not only does John see this rise of a beast from the sea, then he also records for us a vision where he sees the rise of another beast, this time from the earth, which reveals the coming false prophet in verses 11 to 18. And in these verses, we move out to the next parallel layer of this chiastic structure. Because remember, in Revelation chapter 10, the apostle John is sent by God as a true prophet to the nations. And what happens here in Chapter 13, verses 11 and 18. Now a beast is sent by Satan as a false prophet to the nations. So it's a true prophet, the Apostle John sent by God to the nations, but now a false prophet sent by Satan to the nations as well. But as we compare the two beasts of Revelation 13, the Antichrist we see has political and military power as he rules over the world and makes war with the saints. But this false prophet has religious and spiritual persuasion, which is why he deceives the world into worshiping the Antichrist. So the Antichrist has authority over the state and its government, while the false prophet has authority over religious institutions and their rituals. So as we look at this false prophet as the beast arising, John says that he has two horns like a lamb. And who, of course, is pictured as a lamb through the book of Revelation? The Christ. So here we have this beast who appears like Christ the Lamb of God probably because he arises from Christ's church. It's why Christ warns us against false prophets when he says in Matthew 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. See, not all those who claim to be Christians are truly saved by Christ. Not all those who talk like Christians are truly believing in Christ. And not all those who look like Christians are truly followers of Christ. And we know here who this beast truly is because of the way he speaks. He speaks like a dragon. Which means that his words come from a dragon, Satan, who is at work, as we've seen, to deceive the whole world. 
So John shows how this beast now works together with the first beast, exercising his authority so that those on the earth will worship him. This false prophet then is both a satanic miracle worker and a worship leader for the Antichrist. And together with the dragon, listen, these three make up the unholy trinity. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. That's why Robert Mounts, I think, rightly records that as Christ received authority from the Father, so Antichrist receives authority from the dragon. And as the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ, so the false prophet glorifies the Antichrist. See then the rise of this unholy trinity? But as the false prophet rises, John goes on to record the progress of his ministry. He begins by performing great miracles and signs in verse 13, which then lead to idolatry by making an image to the beast in verse 14. And this then leads to the enforcing of the death penalty for those who will not worship the image of the beast in verse 15. Let's then look at the progress of what takes place first. We see how this beast performs great signs. See, as Jesus confirmed his coming or the coming of his kingdom with miraculous signs, so here this false prophet also confirms the coming of Antichrist's kingdom with counterfeit miraculous signs. Which is why this false prophet is then compared to the true prophet Elijah, who called down fire from heaven. And now this false prophet calls down fire from heaven as well. But unlike the fire that came down from heaven through Elijah, and unlike the fire that will come down from heaven by God himself in chapter 20, verse 9, this fire comes down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men as a spectacle to be seen so that the world will be in awe of the Antichrist and worship him. So as the false prophet deceives those who dwells on the earth through these great signs and these miracles, they make an idol of the Antichrist beast. Of course, this is like a great image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon erected and as he commanded the nations to worship this idol in Daniel chapter 3. Here then... We have the same thing taking place once more, that the Antichrist is made as an idol for the nations to worship. But look, this false prophet goes even further because he breathes into the image that, so that it comes to life and speaks. Do you see that even the miracle of life itself without the gospel of Jesus Christ is not Christian, it's satanic. So we do not look to the miracles and signs to show us what's from God. But we look to Christ and the Gospels revealed in the Word so that we will not be deceived. 
And what does the image do to those who refuse to worship the Antichrist? Like Nebuchadnezzar's death penalty for refusing to worship his image, so too Christians will face death for refusing to worship the Antichrist. But again, don't miss how this false prophet was able to carry out these great signs. Because they were once again granted to him by God. See, when we live in sinful rebellion against God, and when we refuse to repent of our sins, God gives us over to our passions and lusts, which includes being deceived by false prophets and teachers. So let, let me briefly return to 2 Thessalonians 2, which in verses 9 to 12, we see how the Apostle Paul describes what happens through this false prophet of the Antichrist. Listen to these words as we continue reading what Paul writes will come. Beginning with verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. He gives us over to Satan's deception in our sin. So that we too then, apart from the grace of Christ and salvation, will worship the false prophet, the Antichrist, and Satan who sent them. Which is why all those who worship the beast will receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And whoever they are, however small or great, however rich or poor, however free or a slave they are, all alike will come in their sin to worship the Antichrist. And now in verse 7, Christ's church is symbolically portrayed as 144,000 who receive a, another seal, a different seal. This is a seal of the living God that they receive on their foreheads. But now the rest of the earth also receives a seal. But it's a satanic seal to mark their ownership to the Antichrist. Again, we see how this mimics and mocks what God does. Back in the Old Testament, as God's people, Israel, were about to enter the promised land, in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9, God says they are to confess the Lord and to teach his word diligently to their children. And you know how, do you remember how they were supposed to do so? By binding his word as a sign on their hand and his frontlets between their eyes. By binding his word, to their hands, and to their forehead. 
But what do we see the world doing in their sin? Binding this mark of the beast to their hand and their forehead. And just like God's seal is not a literal brand or tattoo on the foreheads of Christ's church, so too this mark should not be seen as a literal marking on the right hand or the forehead. Such conspiracy theories as taking this mark through chip implants or receiving the COVID-19 vaccine frankly miss the point. See, we don't accidentally take this mark. We willingly take this mark. Because this mark symbolizes all unbelievers pledging their allegiance to the Antichrist and showing their loyalty to him. And if you refuse, there are consequences. Severe consequences, economic consequences that John writes of. Because no one will be able to carry out business or engage in commerce unless they pledge this allegiance and worship the Antichrist and receive the mark of the beast. Which means that following Jesus, listen, it can cost you your job. Following Jesus can force you to lose your money. Following Jesus can cause you to lose your possessions. That's why uh, John Stone Street, a well-known cultural apologist and defender of the faith, says that as Christians today, we need to develop a theology of getting fired. We also need to develop a theology of how to live in a world we can't engage in buying and selling, of banking and having money. Do you see then how the state, the church, and the business world here all unite together at the end of this age to oppose followers of Christ? And we see then how Satan can and will use all of these social structures, whether government, whether religion, whether financial institutions and businesses, as he wars in this battle against us. But finally, there's a code that's given to reveal who this coming Antichrist is. Right? We all know it, 666, which of course has caused a lot of confusion. This is because the Hebrew language does not have symbols for numbers, which is why it was common to assign numerical values to the letters of their alphabet, which then, when added up, would symbolize a word or a name. But over the years and the centuries, many people have been identified, right? The 666. But it seems to me that those who originally received this book would have been able to decode the meaning. So I think the most likely candidate here is Nero Caesar, who was a first century Roman emperor known for his great wickedness and anti-Christian persecution. And assuming that John wrote Revelation after Nero died, those hearing this chapter would also be aware of the legend 
surrounding Nero, that he would return from the dead. Which is why he then here becomes an example and a type of the greater Antichrist to come at the end of the age. In any case, since the number seven means completeness or perfection, what would six symbolize? But incompleteness or imperfection. Which is then repeated three times for emphasis. So we see then that he is imperfect, 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 or incomplete, 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 rather than our holy, holy, holy God. Brothers and sisters, do you see then how we must beware of satanic deception? Beware of satanic deception! Through these visions of the coming false Christ and the coming false prophet, God is showing us that we must be equipped with discernment so we will not be deceived by Satan and his beasts. Listen, these visions don't only reveal what is to come, but they reveal what has already come against Christ's church in this world. Which is why the Apostle John, in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, writes this to, to believers in Christ. He says to his little children, It is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So see, there are antichrists through the history of the church. And for the churches originally receiving this book from the Apostle John, they were struggling and suffering under the Roman Empire with all of its power, had an imperial cult with emperor worship, which was their antichrist. And even though the Roman Empire has fallen, listen, the sinful human heart hasn't changed, which is why we Christians still today face many antichrists through history and around the world. So I ask you this morning, are you ready? Are you ready for the ways that the Antichrist may manifest himself today? Are you ready for the government and its leaders to take on itself the very roles and responsibilities of God? As the government can increasingly oppose and oppress Christ's church. Are you ready for Christians, popular Christians, who will corrupt the gospel and twist the scriptures to make it appeal that our appeal to our sinful desires and for the approval of society? Are you ready? Are you ready for workplaces that are hostile to your faith in Christ? to businesses that refuse to tolerate 
biblical convictions. Brothers and sisters, this is what Christ reveals to us to expect as we live in this world. This is how Satan battles Christ's church. So we must beware of his deception by seeking Christ and his grace in the gospel and laying hold of his strength in the Holy Spirit as we devote ourselves to his word and his truth so we not fall victim to the deception of Satan and the Antichrist and false prophets that he sends. May none of us fall away from a pure-hearted devotion to Christ, but may we be strengthened in it as we continue living in this sinful and wicked world. So let us pray for the Lord to help us. Father, while we are confronted with difficult words this morning, may we find the sweetness in them through the gospel. That even through the false Christs and the false prophets that come into this world, their time is only temporary. And your purpose is still being accomplished even through all that they do. As our salvation is secure in Christ with our names being written in the book of life. May everyone here look to Christ as those whose names are written in the book of life so that we will not be deceived by Satan, worship his antichrist, fall for the deceptions of the false prophet, and take upon ourselves the mark of the beast. But may we be sealed with the Holy Spirit through the blood of Christ until he returns. Lord, be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.